0: We are beginning a new sermon series today, Um, beginning a new series today uh, uh, on the book of Ruth. Let me give you a quick background here. Um, Ruth uh, is a book in the uh, ancient Hebrew scriptures, or what we might call the Old Testament. Um, It's a book in the Hebrew scriptures that took place uh, when uh, Israel was being formed as a nation very young. Uh, Israel was... um, Israel was uh, in the time of the Judges, right after the time of the Judges, and right before the time of the prophets started. Israel became, uh, was, was, was becoming a nation, and that's when the story of Ruth took place. And we're going to look at that book. It's a very short book. We've divided it into four chapters, and we're going to look at them for the next couple of weeks, probably two more weeks after today. And um, we're going to call the, we're calling the series Ruth a love story. Ruth, a love story. Because it is a love story. Now, when you think of a love story, we may often think about romantic love. And that's the big part. I mean, we all like that, for sure. And that's, that's, that's here. That's wonderful. But there's so much more to love than just romantic love. There's real love. There's, there's uh, re- rewarded love. And there's re- re- uh, redeeming love. And we're going to see those things over the next couple weeks. But today, we're going to start by looking at real love. And it's much bigger than just romantic love. It's, it's something deeper. and something that we see exemplified in today's story. And I think that when you read the story with us, you will discover one of the greatest stories of real love in the pages. To set the stage, let me just ask you this. Have you ever been, have you ever tried to be a loving and considerate of the people around you only to run into your own hard times and find it harder to do. I mean, it's one thing to say I'm a loving person to people in my life. I'm considerate of others. I just think that's the way I ought to be. But then all of a sudden, life comes along and knocks you down. You get the bad diagnosis from the doctor. You lose your job. You have a relational setback. Something happens to shake up your world. And, and suddenly, the loving, considerate person that you've always aimed to be to make the world a better place is suddenly more challenging to you because now all of a sudden, you are struggling, you are struggling through your own heartache. Have you ever felt so consumed by your own grief that you had a hard time being patient with the problems of others or meeting the needs of others because your own needs were now standing out more and you had less margin? What are we supposed to do when life makes it difficult for us to be Helpful to others. To be a loving person. What are we supposed to do? Do our difficulties excuse us from the important virtue of being loving people, of having real love? It would feel reasonable, maybe. What do we do? What should we do in our times of personal suffering and struggle? As we begin to study through the book of Ruth, and we, we taught on Ruth five years ago, actually. Um, and we wanted to come back and, th- and look at that story again at this time and as we begin this journey through Ruth, we want to see a beautiful story of real love. And we're not even going to talk about Ruth that much today. Ruth, as a person, will be mentioned today a little bit, but not focused on, because another character in the story of Ruth is going to stand out when it comes to having real love through personal difficult times. Something that we all need to remember when it's us. We're going to talk about Naomi. Let's begin by starting. We're going to read every verse in the book of Ruth over the next few weeks. But let's start with Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons, their two sons, with him. Now, let me pause here and, and just give you a little setup of what's happening here. Uh, there, a famine hits Israel, and, and this family decides to leave. This is a, a very big deal that they're leaving Israel during the famine. Here's why. It's a big deal because, you see, God had done an awful lot to bring the children of Israel to this promised land. He wanted them to stay there. They were still a very young population. It was very easy to not have the roots that they would have hundreds and hundreds of years later. It would be very easy to, to, to feel like this was a, a temporary a departure that could turn into a permanent one for the nation. In fact, if you were to rewind the story to their founding fathers, The very early um, pilgrimage of Israel started with Abraham and his son Isaac and then Jacob. Isaac wasn't even allowed to leave this area to go get married. He wanted to go back home and get a bride. Dad sent a servant to bring a bride back to Isaac out of fear that if Isaac returned back to where they came from, that he would never want to come back, and they felt that this was the land God promised them. So they are in a place where this was was their, their spot. And now a famine hits the land, and this family decides to leave the country. And of course, leaving the country is leaving their land. And leaving land was a very big deal in this culture. You have to understand, um, property ownership was a very big deal and in an agrarian culture, especially. Property ownership was a big deal. And so, for, for the Hebrew people, uh, it was even a spiritual deal. God gave every bit of this land to them, and He assigned areas to different tribes according to their ancestry and different families had different pieces of land. And and so their identity was a very big deal to to be attached to their land, not just for wealth, but for for heritage. And this man looks at all of that and says, you know what, I'm going to leave because there's a famine, and I'm just not so sure we're going to make it here. And he doesn't only leave Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem is a very important city. Not yet discovered how important it is, but we know in history now how important this place is. But, but here at the beginning, this man is, I'm going to leave Bethlehem, and I'm going to go, and he moved to Moab. Now, Moab was a very, very wicked place. Moab was a country that um, actually gave the children of Israel a lot of trouble as they came to their promised land. In fact, in, in kind of getting together with some of the people of Moab, they brought some sinful practices in the country so bad that, that they faced judgment uh, spiritually for the sin that came through the Moabite uh, uh, people. And so at this time, to leave their homeland and their land and go to Moab was a very big deal. But this man says, there's a famine and I got to do what I got to do. So we're going, me and the wife and the kids, and we're leaving it behind to go to this other country. Let's continue verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi. Their two sons were named Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. So they settled down in this new place, as we've just talked about. Verse 3, Then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. Can you just imagine how hard this would be? Because they're in a foreign land, and now the man who brought them there, I don't know how much of a joint decision it was between Elimelech and Naomi in that culture. It was very patriarchal. It could have just been wife, kids were going, you know. But either way, whether it was a joint decision or mostly his, they're in Moab, far from home, far from family, far from support. And he died. He died. And, and, and this is important to understand as we, as we get into the story. In that time of culture, it was very hard to be a woman anyhow. Women didn't always have the kind of rights that we appreciate today. And they didn't have them today for even 100 years back. It's just amazing how, how times were in, in the world back then, in this part of the world. Uh, women didn't, couldn't, you know, they didn't get votes or say so. They couldn't testify in court. They didn't own property. Uh, Traditionally, a lot of women, when they'd marry, they would marry more for convenience and and support than for love because you had to figure out how to get by. It was just not a culture that we understand today. And to be a widow in that culture, you didn't have anything, potentially. If you had your husband's land, that was one thing you'd have. But if you couldn't pay for it because you couldn't do anything, then you'd lose it. And, And it was almost a death sentence for many people. And Naomi's lost her husband, and she doesn't even have her land anymore. They've left Bethlehem, they're in Moab. They've got nothing. And she's a widow in this culture. What is she supposed to do? Well, she has her two sons, and that's usually what you depend upon when your husband dies, is you've got your family around you. So her two sons, men in the men's world, could help her out. That's a good thing, right? Verse 4, the two sons married Moabite women. Of course, they lived in Moab. Their choices were in Moab, so they married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, Not to be confused with Oprah, which I said accidentally while I was practicing the sermon yesterday. Married a woman named Orpah. uh, And the other, a woman named Ruth. I didn't get that one wrong. Named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Can we just grieve for Naomi for a minute here? What a lousy outturn, outcome. I mean, her husband dies. Her son's marry. She's at least trying to pick up her life and go forward with their help. Then they both die. Now, she's alone, and there are two daughters from Moab that she's, you know, she's living there. All the men in her life, all her family's gone. <clears throat> Why do they die? We don't know. <clears throat> Did they, you know, get into... They company and get in trouble and get hurt? I don't know. Did they have a genetic problem that caused, that, that, you know, caused, you know it ran in the family and the men died? I don't know. We can speculate what happened. We don't know. All we know is that Naomi is now a widow. Her husband's gone. Her two sons are gone. And she's alone. She has two daughters-in-law living there in their land where she's far from home. And again, in a culture where widows are usually in big trouble. What do you do What a bad situation? By the way, I can only imagine how much grief and also how much guilt could compo- compound grief. We all know this to be true, don't we? That whenever we go through grief in life, whenever we suffer in life, what we tend to do is we tend to not only grieve, but the enemy comes along and drops a huge old heaping of guilt on top of our grief. It doesn't have to be rational guilt. We didn't have to do anything wrong. It just comes with a package for no reason at all. Like we just are—we're grieving, and then there comes guilt, whether it should be there or not, it's there. So what's Naomi going through? Is she sitting there saying, "What in the world? We should have never come to this place." Is she—is she saying we made a bad choice, or is she—is she blaming herself for the circumstances of life that could have happened anywhere? Perhaps? Maybe they wouldn't have happened anywhere. What if, what if? What if? What if? Is the question she could ask herself. On top of that, could she blame her husband? he comes out and drags me over here and then gets himself killed. Here I am. I don't know. But here she is, she can blame herself, she can blame her husband, she can blame God. What's God doing? Where is God at in my life? She can do all of the above. Everyone's wrong. It doesn't matter because when you're grieving, you look for someone to blame. And if you don't blame you, you might blame somebody else, you might blame up. But the bottom line is this poor girl, this poor lady, is older, a widow, and now lost two sons, what is she supposed to do? Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. This is pretty awesome. By the way, the famine came to an end. I, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I feel like I need to say this. The famine always comes to an end and good crops come again. It's very easy in all of our lives to despair in a time of famine and to say, listen, I don't know what to do, but I want, to, I want you to remember something. The good crops will come again. Famines are temporary. And they went through a hard time and the nation went through a hard time, but, but it came around. And remember that. If you need that today, and Naomi hears the story from Moab. She hears the story, and, and she's with her daughters-in-law. And so they got up, and they are ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. They're going to leave together and go back to Bethlehem where things were good once again. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So now she's going back home, and these two girls who were not from Judah are about to go with her, like she once left her homeland to go to Moab. They're about to leave Moab to go to her homeland with her. By the way, which is a great deal for her, because they are also widows. They are also women who have a hard place in that culture finding your way. They depended on remarriage to have a, a chance. And they had a better opportunities. I mean, they are young. They, they were, you know, they, they were, you know, They had opportunities. Maybe some guys wanted a girl that never had another man before. But in this case, at least they were young and had options. Whereas Naomi's old. On top of it all, trying to eke out an existence back in Bethlehem when your land's been forfeited, when you are trying to figure out what you're going to do, I mean, there was laws built into the nation of Israel to allow for the people in poverty to eat. Leave the corners of the fields unharvested. Don't go over the fields twice. Let, let the poor have access to food of some kind. So there were some laws to try to provide for the poverty, for the widows, for the orphans and the fatherless. And so Naomi's going back with two girls who had a better hope of remarrying than she did, but also two girls who were stronger and younger than she was. They were in much better shape, to eke out an existence, to work the field's long hours, to find out what could happen to feed the family. She kind of needed them because life had been pretty crummy for Naomi. And so they're all heading back. But look at verse 8. But on the way, Naomi said to her her, her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's home and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands, my sons, and to me. What she says to these girls is, look, I know what it's like to leave home and your support system. Be far away in a far off land. And it hasn't worked out very well for me. And now you're going to stick along with me and that would help me tremendously as an older widowed woman. But listen, girls, you have support here. Go back to your parents' house. You got familiarity. You're familiar with this area. This is your, your your religion is here. Your family's here. Your support system's here. Your surroundings that you know, this is where you're from. Go back home. You've been good to me. I'm going to release you. That was not in Naomi's best interest. Naomi's interest is to say, this has stunk, and I need some help. But she says, girls, that's not what's best for you. She goes on to say this in verse 9, May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And again, for many women, that was a security thing. May God bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Can you imagine this, the emotional scene that's happening with these girls who've lost their husbands? And they've been through a lot, too. They lost their husbands. They were, they, you know, she lost her husband and her sons. They lost their husband and never had kids. They're all grieving. And they hug and they cry and they weep. Verse 10, no, the girls said, we want to go with you to your people. They loved her. So, they thought so highly of Naomi that they're going to say, we're still going to leave this place against all sense and go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why? Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? I have nothing to offer you. Girls, you have something to offer me. In support and youth, I have nothing to offer you. No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. She's talking about. She's making a great case to scare them away, for their own good. And then she says, "This things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord Himself has raised His fist against me." And Naomi's giving us a little glimpse into her heart here, her grief. She's saying, "It has been ugly for me." She is saying. I'm in a worse spot than you girls are. And I feel like God himself has turned against me and raised his fist against me and I am in a bad position and it's worse for me than it is for you. But I can't think of me because I need to think of you. If I'm thinking of me, I'm saying, I've had a hard road. My husband died, my kids have died, but God's got his fist against me. I need some help. You girls stay with me. But if I'm thinking of you, your best future is for me to release you. So go. Go. That's got to be hard. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. So Orpah takes her advice, and she hugs her and kisses her and cries one more time, and she goes back home. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. Ruth, why are you still here? Go, go home. I want to pause here just for a second to say this. It's so easy to miss when you read a story quickly. If you've ever read the book of Ruth in a Bible reading plan and you just were getting through chapters one through four, you may not have thought about it. But Naomi is a very destitute, beat down person I don't know how much she's blaming God or she's saying God's giving me what I deserve because we left, broke the covenant by leaving and going to Moab or if she's blaming her husband. I don't know what. She's just saying it stinks. It stinks for me and I'm in a bad shape and that's a bitter life. But even in the middle of it all, she's looking at these girls and she's saying to them, I need to serve you. I need to do what's best for you. And if, if Naomi is teaching us something, what Naomi was saying is this, that my suffering... That my suffering doesn't give me a right to be selfish. That my suffering doesn't give me a right to sit there and say, "Well, you know what? Forget everybody else. Been tough for me, therefore it's time for me to look out for old number one. Time for me to look out for me." That's what we tend to do. We tend to say, "Hey, I tried. I played the game of whatever caring, but you know what? I'm jaded. I'm burnt, and I'm bitter, and I'm just done." But Naomi, in the middle of all of that, said, You know what, girls? Selfishly, this is what's best for me. But my suffering doesn't give me a right to be selfish. You need to do what's best for you, and I need to nudge you that direction. What she was also saying was this My hurt does not invalidate your hurt. Isn't that what we do sometimes? We compare hurts. I've seen it my whole life. We, people can, you know, well, th- this is worse than, than that. My, my hurt is my excuse for my behavior well, how could, don't gripe to me. Don't tell me how hard it is for you. It's been hard for me. It's been harder for me. But the truth is, is that whatever I'm going through, whatever you're going through, whatever Naomi was going through, someone else is also going through hurting. We can't look past theirs and say, oh, that ain't nothing. You should see me. At some point, we have to look at people and say, I know I'm hurting, but man, so are you. Naomi could have looked at those girls and said, yeah, I lost a husband. And my boys, you lost your husbands. And you've been, you were with them for years and you didn't even have kids. This isn't your dream. Well, you going to go to a foreign land because I need help? That's not your dream. Oh, come on. My hurt doesn't invalidate your hurt. That's hard to do because we tend to shrink in and look at, at us. It's just natural. Now, what happens next as Ruth refuses to listen to her mother-in-law and go back home. She says, I'm sticking with you. Now, we're not going to read those verses. We're going to read every verse at some point, but that's next week. But she gives a beautiful response that we'll come back to. But basically what she does is she says, I'm sticking with you, Mom. I'm going with you back home to your home country. For today, let's finish this chapter about Naomi's return. Ruth 1, verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. What can you say? Her mind was made up. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. And I actually have to think about that word excited. Were they happy to see them? Were they just like, was this the buzz? But the town was excited by their arrival. Is it really, Naomi, can you imagine The women are asking, is it really Naomi? Can you imagine all of a sudden these family left? And they're like, they left a long time ago. Naomi and her husband and boys have left. Is this really her? Where's her husband? Where's her son? They should be grown up by now. Did they not come with her? What, they died? Who's this foreign girl with her? Is this really Naomi? The town was abuzz when she walked back in. Bethlehem Inquirer was on the scene. Look what she says. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. The word Naomi, her name Naomi, meant pleasant or even sweet. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She says, Look, I don't even, I want, I'm doing a name change. Like, I want to be known for something else now because pleasant is not my story. Instead, I want you to call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I don't, I don't, don't glaze over this because if you glaze over this we'll fictionalize people that existed who, if I went through a quarter of her pain it'd be my life swan song, you know we, we, we can glaze over what she went through how devastating was her, was her life and if we're not careful we'll minimize their hurt and then we'll minimize the awesome things like what she did for her daughters-in-law and tried to do for them is amazing considering what she's going through here's what she's going through she says, change my name the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Again, is she blaming God? Or is she blaming herself, saying, I'm getting what I deserve? Is she blaming her husband for what happened? All she, It doesn't matter. She's not, whether, however you want to read into that, Naomi's just saying, it really stinks. She goes on and explains further, verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi. When the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Don't miss her pain. And, and, and the problem is, again, we make superheroes out of people. We look at the story of Job, where Job went through tremendous loss. And Job was like, that's okay. I came into this world with nothing. I'll leave with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As if that's somehow normal. Like this, this, is, this is what it is. This is what, we, this is what it is. Life is bitter. don't even just, I don't even who I am anymore. You know, Job's over there going like, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Naomi's like, he's got his fist raised against me. What in the world? I mean, that's normal. And I want you to see, by the way, let's not be Job's friends. Remember Job's bad friends? Let's not be the people that look at her and say, how could you talk this way? We would all feel this way. But Naomi is just stating that life is hard. And and when people are grieving, by the way, God's big enough to handle all of our doubts and fears and questions and anxieties. He's not fragile. But whatever she's going through, whatever she's stating here, whatever her perspective even is, I want you to see those verses to understand from her own lips how horrible, not only what happened to her, but how she was taking it. It was brutal. It was brutal. And that's the woman that somehow looks at her daughters and says, daughters-in-law, and says, "Girls, forget me. I want what's best for you." Who does that? We think we might, but it's hard to do. But she does. Verse twenty-two. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that barley harvest is going to set the scene for Ruth and a beautiful love story to come. But that's not today. That's next week. For today, I just want to make a couple observations to all of us. And I want to lean into Naomi and all of her pain and all of her suffering, and yet her ability to say, as as I said earlier, that my suffering doesn't give me a right to be selfish. Her ability to say that my hurt does not invalidate your hurt. And if I can let turn that around and kind of like let Naomi preach to us a little bit, if I can let Naomi kind of speak into our lives and, and kind of be pointed. In other words, if, if I could let Naomi's story kind of raise a finger and tell us what we don't want to hear when we're going through bad times. If I'm going through a bad time, I don't want someone in my, in my face telling me how I, to, how I ought to be doing it, right? If you're hurting, you don't need someone in your face preaching at you at the moment. You need someone to love you. But if I, from the stage right now, can say to all of us in this room, all of us online, that Naomi's sermon was preaching to all of us what we need to hear, this is the message. That feeling unloved doesn't give you the right to be unloving. That feeling unloved doesn't give me the right to be unloving. That I'm still called. That I'm still of Sensibility. That I can say, well, I was doing fine and then life got tough, so forget that. That's not what love is, and that's not what love does. In fact, what is love? Remember those little comics growing up, the little cart in a paper, the little love is comics, little guy and girl cartoon that were too poorly clothed showing what love is all the time? All right, so love is. What is love? Well, let me give you some thoughts here. Love is giving mercy when you don't feel you are receiving it. It's hard to do. Like, I want to show mercy to these girls and let them go, be set free from their sensibilities to me. Naomi's like, where's my mercy, God? Your fist feels like it's against me. When I don't feel like I'm receiving mercy, it's easy for me to justify that I don't need to give any. Give me a break. But love says I can give mercy even when I don't feel I'm receiving any mercy. What is love? Love is remembering others when you feel forgotten. That's hard. The tendency in all of us when we feel forgotten by God, by the world around us, by everyone who we thought cared, is to shrink back into a bubble and to validate our belief that no one cares because we just pull back further and further until no one knows what to do. And and, and here's the thing. Sometimes that's a valid, understandable feeling. But here's what we have to remember. That in the moments that we feel forgotten, we can't control that. But I'm always amazed by the people who say what I can do is I can remember others when I feel forgotten. I can make sure that somebody else doesn't experience the pain of feeling forgotten. I make sure someone else is remembered. I can control that. Love, love is caring for others when you feel neglected. Love is saying, look, no one's, I feel neglected, but guess what? I can't control that. But I can make sure that you feel cared for, that you're not neglected. See, it's amazing to me in my, in my life, and I've learned this the hard way, and, and I've, I've, it's a beautiful thing to figure out, and I've not always gotten it right. But when I have, it's such a life changer. That when I get to the spot where I'm saying, I'm forgotten, I'm neglected, I'm whatever. It's helpless, it's embittering, it's It's reactive. But when we step out to be proactive and say, you know what, I can't control that, but I can control that I can do for you what I wish someone would do for me. I can do for you what I wish someone would do for me. I can love you. I can care for you. I can remember you. I can show you mercy. Love is seeking their happiness even when you can't find yours. And that's what happens. We're like, you know what? I have every right in this world to look out for old number one right now, after all I've been through. And that's true. But that's not what love requires of us. Love says, How can I help you even though it's evading me? That's Naomi. That's not just Naomi, that's, that's Ruth. We're not discussing Ruth today, but that's Naomi. She's a rock star. I know, I know, we all like the giant killers. Give me David with a sling and a stone taken on the giant, that's the hero. I think Naomi's the hero, a hero. It's not just people who take down giants. It's people who walk through tremendous heartache and tremendous loads of grief who can somehow say, though I am hurting, let me do right by you. That God will bring a beautiful story that we're yet to see, a beautiful story to come from a woman who bore a heavier burden than perhaps stepping on a battlefield with a sword. She hurt, and yet she loved Even in her hurt. So as we wrap up for today, let's take this important truth home with us together. That real love—we're not about romance, but real love. Real love does the hard things, even in the hard times. Doesn't just do the hard things when it's easy, when everything's convenient, when the stars and the planets line up just right. Even in the hard times, real love does the hard things. Or if I can change it this way, real love. Does what is hard, even when it's hard. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus did for us. That is the gospel. Our sin that broke the relationship with God, what it cost Him to bring redemption to us, was God saying, Let me show mercy to the unmerciful and love to the selfish and and restoration. And to be like Jesus, to show the love that he's shown us, the real love, is a calling we are called to as believers in Christ. And you say, what about my happiness? But here's the thing. Jesus said this about a thousand years after this. Jesus said, if you seek your own life and your own happiness, all that stuff, you're going to lose it all. But if in the middle of whatever is going on, if you can lay that aside and and lose your life and and serve others and follow me and, and, and do what I'm calling you to do, You'll find it. You'll find it there. And and folks, today, I, I, I wish life would always go the way you hope and dream it would go, but I hope that when it doesn't, that we would follow our Savior's example, that we'd be like Naomi and show real love to the people around us who are most affected by how we act when we're hurting and when we're down. It's a good story. The barley harvest is coming next, and it all kind of unfolds before today. Let's love like that.